0: Hello, everyone, it's June 23rd, 2020. So, Astrobotic has been selected to take a Viper to the moon, which sounds like a lunar biology experiment. Also, a quick update on the Crew Dragon Endeavor. It's still docked at station, that part hasn't changed just yet. Okay, let's get going and lift off. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 265 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Yeah, so actually one thing that we're, we didn't mention or that we're not going to do as a news topic and I somehow just found out today because I don't know how to search through space news, um, meaning the actual website.
1: <laughs>
0: Apparently SpaceX will be reusing their first stage boosters and their... Dragon spacecraft, like their actual Crew Dragon spacecraft, for future missions, apparently starting yeah. with PCM2, which is oh, cool, post-certification mission, which is for 2021 at some point. I don't know if that's what they're actually calling these missions, because that doesn't sound like something you would you would want to call it, but for now, I guess like one of the designations is PCM post-certification. So they're going to be reusing First Stages and Crew Dragons, and honestly, that surprised me, but then as I read further down in the article, I'd forgotten Starliner already is doing that, or they will be doing that. So they will be reusing the Starliner spacecraft, or they'll be, I guess, like refurbishing it. And I think we had mentioned, we talked about it months ago, how it was kind of surprising, or at least it was surprising to me that they would allow that for Boeing, but not for SpaceX.
1: Yeah, I don't know why they would have adopted that policy in the first place. Do you know? Is there something different between those companies where they were just like... between those vehicles, where they're just like, well, you know, Starliner, they can refurbish that, and that'll be. Well, easy. so is
2: it is it actually a change in policy, or just confirming that it's a thing?
1: I guess that's also my second question. Is is this coming from this is coming from NASA, or was this SpaceX making the decision?
0: Okay, so same on the chat does make a good point. <laughs> yeah, so actually, the Dragon spacecraft gets dunked in water, but the Starliner does not, and that might be a crucial distinction there. Right, right. Uh, and obviously, Boeing does not have anything to do with the reused booster because that's off the table. They don't reuse their. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not going to be a thing. But, yeah, okay, so that might be the key difference there. Is it you know salt water actually, but they did have that, you know, they did have that issue. Remember when they tried to refire the dragon and it blew up the one that I believe had been dunked in water, wasn't that the one that didn't that ditch in the ocean the yeah, one that blew up
1: their their like, first one, but it was, yeah, I think that was just a uh. That that was the titanium
2: issue, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, I think that was independent of the salt water. I thought it had something
0: to do with salt water for some reason, like something had leaked. Well, I think
2: the, I think the salt water allowed the, or caused the valve to leak, but it was the, what was it, the, uh, the MMH or the UDMH interacting Mm -hmm. with the titanium that caused the explosion. So the salt water exposed that as an issue, but, you know, it isn't necessarily, or isn't, a problem in the future. Like they, they fixed that issue. Yeah.
0: They did fix it with the, um, the burst um, discs. Yeah. Yeah. But that was an issue at the time. Like it's a good thing they did that test after they had, you know, like, I mean, that kind of came out of nowhere to me. Um, that was quite a shock to see it just blow up like Ah. that on the test stand, like very violently and suddenly just disappear.
2: Ben Hallert uh, says, um, uh, SpaceX has said they learned a lot during the Dragon 1 campaign about building saltwater resiliency into the Dragons, that they were able to incorporate those uh, lessons learned into Crew Dragon uh, to reduce the impact on and make refurbishment easier. So there may have been some sort of qualification that's happened um, that allowed them to change that Um, That decision making.
0: One thing that SpaceX had mentioned was that it would actually make I mean it's obviously more cost effective but also it would actually be safer because you know this is something that has been flown once and like Mm -hmm. therefore presumably it can be flown again which is a really cool argument to make for spacecraft because it does apply for other types of vehicles you know I mean that's why when you fly a plane for the first time you have to do some kind of a shakedown or whatever they call it I don't know but you know like you know like you have to do your maiden test flight Mm -hmm. then it's actually certified but for spacecraft it's kind of the other way around where you Fly it once and then, you know, that's, you know, assumed to be the safest it will ever be. But I don't see why that should be in the future if you have something that's...
1: Flight proven, yeah.
0: Yeah, like why shouldn't that apply to spacecraft? I mean, there are good reasons why, but I think that's changing now.
1: Yeah, that's what I was thinking is if, if, if I had to go up on one, you know, I would want it to be mm-hmm. one that had flown before.
0: So Astrobotic, they are to deliver Viper, or uh, the Viper rover, to the moon. So we've discussed this before, right? I get all these rovers, and I know we've talked about Astrobotic because they're kind of like a new, cool company doing impressive things.
1: It's, so Astrobotic, we've been hearing about with the CLIPS program, right? Commercial Lunar Payload Services. So private companies get stuff to the moon, generally to kind of help out with uh, Artemis's goals, so number of them are heading to the South Pole, but uh, not all of them. But I think the the more recent thing is that uh, specifically that they're going to be in charge of delivering Viper to the moon, selecting the launch vehicle, integrating it, and uh, getting it there on its lander. I wanted to give a little kind of, I guess, background a little bit, a refresher for clips, because, you know, this has been going on for a while, right? Uh, uh, The first contracts were in 2018, and then last year we had five more that were added. And so kind of the timeline to expect the first one to launch is going to be Astrobotic, but they're going to be sending their Peregrine Lander to a place uh, pretty close to the, you know, at a very high northern latitude, Lacus Mortis. Which, if you kind of look at the moon, the Maria, the uh, dark seas, there's like on the western side, there's like a ton, and then on the eastern side, there's not that many, but there's a bit more circular and well defined the few seas that you can see, and so it's just kind of north of the what's usually I think one of the eyes for the man in the moon, or uh, I think the ear for the bunny in the moon, depending on what you're looking at. This Sea of Serenity, so it's just north of there, but um, this is this is a, a smaller uh, version of their. Uh, their Griffin lander, which um, is going to be the one that actually ends up taking Viper to the moon. So that's uh, that's the first thing Astrobotic is sending. Uh, and then that same year, uh, Intuitive Machines is going to be sending uh, five payloads on their lander to Oceanus Solarum. And then the next year in 2022, and Space Systems is going to be going to the South Pole. Uh, with their XL1 lander, um, uh, at least nine instruments on board that uh, spacecraft. And then 2023, so we have three years from now, uh, is when Viper will be heading there. And this one will be a proper uh, rover zooting around. And so uh, it stands for Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. And the way that language is, I feel like they should have a, a hyphen there. Should be the volatiles investigating yeah, polar exploration. Not volatiles investigating. Right. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, it just sounds kind of clunky to just say it out word by word,
0: as though the volatiles are doing the be-
1: <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And just and just, and just <laughs> remember, volatiles are in in planetary science speak, right? Anything that would typically be you know gaseous, uh, kind of on Earth or easily transitions from solid to gaseous phase. Um. So, so methane ices, uh, nitrogen ices, uh, ammonia ices, water ices. Those are kind of
0: yeah. Because I was going to ask what those were, because I mean I don't think of like I forgot all the gases you just listed, but um, that pretty much just means anything that you know like easily transitions from a solid to a gas.
1: Yeah, yeah. Volatile means something very specific in chemistry, but you know, astronomers and planetary scientists, a metal is anything other than hydrogen, helium. in in our (laughs) kind of jargon so (laughs) a a volatile to us is something like you're you're not really going to see like other than kind of contrived situations silicon uh oxides are not going to be in a gaseous form you know anywhere or and so that's why things that'll uh because there's not really atmosphere so things that'll sublimate you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so ices will sublimate on different worlds uh Methane ices will sublimate, Uh, nitrogen ices on triton will sublimate. And so Mm. those are kind of volatiles. I guess things with a low uh, boiling temperature, I think, would be the more. Basically anything but
2: rock, any solids other than rock. Pretty much. uh (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> pretty good volatile candidate yeah
1: Yeah, and in this case the volatile that's being explored is really water right for the obvious reasons mm-hmm. you know water would be a uh, huge for uh, in situ resource utilization on the moon so so viper um you know a lot of times right these these missions kind of build on previously designed ones and so this one is kind of uh, uh building on the resource prospector mission which was canceled uh, a couple years ago 2018 and um to me, it looks like a small sand crawler from uh, Star Wars. Hmm.
2: It's just got that hmm.
1: kind of, you know, boxy, but not, you know, actually, bo- mm-hmm. like, you know, at a bit of an angle slanted out. But, um, you know, it's, it's a four-wheeled rover. It's uh, managed by uh, Ames. Uh, It's got hardware from uh, Johnson Space Center and then the software uh, being developed also by Ames uh, and Kennedy, as well as the Honeybee Robotics. Specifically, Astrobotic got just shy of $200 million, $199.5 million, um, to get it to the South Pole with their Griffin lander. So, right, so Peregrine, right, is their smaller one? Griffin is their bigger one? Griffins don't really exist, though, do they, right? Isn't that just a mythological? No, that's a mythical. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah, a a griffin's got a lion's head and wings, right?
1: Right, so... There's the bird theme, but I guess when it gets bigger, it gets more (laughs) impressive. I don't know. So, uh, anyway, but but what's cool about that, I kind of, you know, I mentioned it earlier, is that Astrobotic isn't just, you know, providing their griffin lander uh, to get it there, which is a really cool-looking lander. It looks like it's got ramps on both sides coming off of it. Mm -hmm. It's it's a scaled-up, larger version of of the... the, the Peregrine. But they're also in charge of uh, providing the launch vehicle, which they haven't, you know, decided or selected yet, um, as well as, you know, like I said, the integrating it and kind of managing the whole delivery there, which is pretty cool. You know, and again, this kind of theme of getting commercial partners to take a bigger, take the lead role in uh, more space exploration.
0: One question, going back to the lander again, um, with those Two ramps. Why is that? Is that just to give it like multiple options uh, for dismount? Because I don't know why you would need. I mean, it can't go down both of them, obviously. (laughs) So why does it have two ramps?
1: I'm assuming there's going to be other.
2: Well, no, I mean, I mean, there there are two ramps, and they're perfectly aligned with. It's wheels with the rover's wheels. I wonder if it if it crawls back up to charge and this way it can drive forward up the ramp and still be facing the right way for charging ports. Yeah, Sam's got a good point. If you accidentally land too close to a boulder or something, right. This, Redundancy. this allows you to choose which side you're gonna drive off. That's a good point.
0: Right. And that's kind of what I was thinking, is that you know, just in case there's something in the way, then that's why they would do it. I just wasn't sure because uh, yeah. I mean I couldn't think of any other
2: reason. Yeah, I thought you were joking when you said two options, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. no. I'll Oh, no, no. <laughs> You're right.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: You would think that they could probably set it down somewhere where that wouldn't be an issue. But then again, the moon, you never know. I it's, mean, it's
1: a lot less flat moon? at the South Poles than it is yeah. where we were landing the first handful of Apollo. And, and
2: not only that, but this is this is an automated, like, we give it a landing zone, but it's the lander is picking where it's actually going to land, you know, in the last couple of moments. And, you know. Computers are good, but not always perfect, and we have a lot of experience with this kind of thing here on Earth. But yeah, it doesn't hurt to have uh, a second chance if you land, you know, a mm-hmm. little too close. Yeah, no, or who knows, you know, what, once you uh, when you're landing, you can't always evaluate the surface with the same amount of detail that you would want for the rover. So it may be a perfectly acceptable place to land. And you just decide, oh, you know what? We're not going to go that way. That that looks a little more dangerous. Mm-hmm. So maybe it doesn't have to be as dramatic as landing next to a boulder.
0: And also, when you consider how much trouble some of the astronauts had who were, you know, yeah. like landing on the moon, yeah. then, <laughs> and those are human beings, who knows uh, how well this is going to do?
1: You know, one shot at it. Well, speaking of that, so so one of the things AstroBotics is bringing is what they call their uh, Terrain Relative Navigation System, or TRN. And so this is uh, some proprietary, you know, GNC software and hardware that kind of they say can give them a hundred meter landing accuracy of where they want to actually put themselves down.
0: I'm not sure I understand that because that doesn't seem very accurate or do they mean a hundred meters that they can, you know, pre-select that pretty far out and then they can, you know, dial it in, in the last couple of seconds. When they're
1: coming in from orbit, they can get to within a hundred meters and then from there make choices. Right. Well, yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, terrain relative navigation means it it sounds almost kind of like, you know, what Hayabusa 2 did. That was kind of the big deal once they found out how bouldery uh, Ryugu was, was to kind of be able to use landmarks to navigate off of, right? And Osiris-Rex has to do this too. So given that, I mean, you know, if those spacecraft can get, I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but if, the, if they can get, you know, the kind of accuracy that they have, which is, you know, within meter or so, I feel like, why wouldn't they be able to? You know what I mean? So, because mm-hmm. I mean, terrain relative navigation system. I mean, I read that as something that can use, you know, right. markers on the ground. It can basically assess, all right, if this boulder's here and that boulder's there and this rock's here, then I want to move over this way.
0: So, yeah, not for landing, but for navigation, I guess is the key distinction there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Come, coming in from, from orbit, a tenth of a kilometer is pretty good. I would say, yeah. especially since well, the moon's they, got the kind of weird, lumpy gravitational field that kind of messes with you. Yeah. So
2: they, they say that it's an, or it's orders, plural orders of magnitude better than conventional landing systems. Mm. But I don't, I don't know what they would, by by conventional landing systems, they probably mean unguided inertial. Well, not unguided, but inertial uh, landing systems. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Dennis, I think you're right. Like a hundred meters. It's not that far. <laughs> <laughs> like when you're when you're coming in from orbit i mean what mm-hmm. if you think about it in terms of gps accuracy that's ridiculous oh. uh but in terms of coming in from landing yeah i mean I, my initial impression was that that was an incorrect number. But yeah, once you once you put it that way...
0: Yeah, because I mean, how else can you do it? Because like you're saying, you can't do it with GPS because there's no GPS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could do inertial navigation, but to me, and this has always been like magic to me, I just don't see how it could be that accurate. But apparently, like <laughs> it, it is in many cases. It can't,
2: yeah, it can be. Uh, especially if you pair it with, with radar. But visual, like radar will tell you how high above the surface you are. But a visual navigation system, which by the way, TRN is a visual navigation system. You can not only tell when you need to land or when, you know, when you're landing, but where you're landing.
1: And and I was just thinking uh, a way to phrase it to kind of bring home the point of how accurate it is, is what if you just say, yeah, and it'll, it'll be targeting a landing ellipse of a hundred meters, right? Right. That's that, that makes it sound, I think better, you know?
0: Yeah. So apparently this vehicle uses monomethyl hydrazine and MON or MON25 propellant. I don't know what that is actually. I don't know what the second one is. I do know what monomethyl hydrazine is, but um is that mixed ox Okay, yeah. So mixed oxides of nitrogen. I am now reading the yep. show notes. Um I didn't know that it could be abbreviated in that way. Okay. And but what does the 25 mean? Like I'm not actually familiar with this.
2: 25% nitric oxide. Okay. So so it's it's nitric oxide and uh dinitrogen oxide and nitrogen oxide. And so yeah, the the mix is between dinitrogen touch oxide and nitrogen dioxide and then the number indicates how much so the NO is how much there. of that is the Yeah, exactly. So
0: now that makes me wonder why that particular propellant combination.
2: So the more the more NO that you use, or the the more NO two that you use, the less corrosive it is, but it's more expensive. Um and it's and it's less it's less powerful, it's less oxidative. So you're if you use just nitrogen touch oxide, it's Really expensive, really harsh. If you use just nitrogen dioxide, it's not as good of a fuel. Or it's not as good of a propellant, but it's a better, uh, it's a better fluid to work with. So you mix the two and and pick mm-hmm. your poison, basically. Okay. Do
1: you, do you think the the weight matters at all? They're
2: they're almost exactly the same fluid density. Um, one point four five ah. versus one point four four grams per cubic centimeter. So almost the same density.
1: Yeah, so just to kind of wrap it up, right? So this is looking for water specifically, and just kind of the reminders that most of the water on the moon is thought to kind of not just exist as just pure free water, you know? Like you just go and scrape it into like a little Mm -hmm. container, and voila, you've gone... You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, got some resources from the moon, uh, but uh, rather locked up in minerals and whatnot. And so um, Viper carries four instruments. Uh, three are kind of water-detecting ones that, uh, that have variants that are going to fly on earlier eclipse payloads. And those are the uh, neutron spectrometer system where you bombard your sample with neutrons. And then based on the scattering, you can get an idea of what's in there. The near-infrared volatile spectrometer system, which is, uh, I guess, called Nervous... Uh, N-I-R-V-S-S, which is an interesting choice for an acronym, but can't be right. surprised nowadays. So uh, anyway, that's just a near-infrared near, near infrared, uh, spectrometer. So in this case, you're using light rather than neutrons. And then finally, a mass spectrometer called Mass Spectrometer Observing Lunar Operations, or M-SOLO. And so, you know, classic mass spectrometer. And then I think... The real exciting bit uh, is uh, the Trident instrument. So wait,
2: be- before you move on to Trident, do you know how M-Solo works? Is it it's a sample-based mass spec or is it a remote mass spec? Right, because you can you can do mass spectrometry without actually chewing up a uh, a sample.
1: It's a good question. Um, I do not know which of those two M-Solo. i will google it while you're working on the next instrument and so uh those are all great for sure but the kind of you know one that i think steals the show is the regolith and ice drill for exploring new terrain which they call trident which is a uh, one meter or three foot drill and so uh you know it will be doing some sampling um on the lunar surface
2: oh it's a faraday cup and electron multiplier yeah so it's pointy shooty type mass spec, not a Crunchy, puffy-type mass spec. So, um, Dennis, you wrote here that variants of these instruments will fly on earlier CLIPS payloads. So the CLIPS missions so far are Peregrine, which we talked about, and then Intuitive Machines uh, Nova-C, and then uh, Masten's XL-1, and then, yeah, Viper and Griffin landing together. So do you know which ones will fly on which ones? And there are... Additional like it's not like every lander is going to carry this this sensor suite. Do you know which ones will fly and on which missions? That's kind of a tough question.
1: Yeah, so so we've got a lot of instruments that are spread out over a lot of the different missions, but what's uh, really neat is about these particular variants is that so it's not the drill, it's the right the three the neutron spectrometer, the mass spectrometer, the near infrared spectrometer. Uh, they're first gonna fly on Astrobotics Peregrine lander. So that's you know they're again they're, they're smaller initial uh, clips uh, mission, uh, but then they're going to fly a second time the next year on Masten Space Systems uh, XL1 lander. And so uh, that one's going to be closer to the South Pole as opposed to Peregrine, which is landing, you know, in one of these uh lunar lakes. It's Mario. And so, uh yeah, and then that's going to be basically like two setups, you know, uh, to kind of, I guess, you know, really get a feel for the uh, function of the instruments, uh, what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, like they said, they are variants of it. And so they can basically try to optimize it so then when the, you know, the big crown jewel uh, Viper goes and gets launched in 2023, Uh, and start zooting around at the South Pole uh, that it'll have basically, you know, really, you know, well-tested, well-characterized in a actual lunar environment twice uh, Mm -hmm. instruments on board. And so (laughs) really cool cool. stuff. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) Yeah. And and I did a little digging around in
2: in Intuitive Machines Nova C mission, which flies right after Peregrine. Um, shares a bunch the both of the peregrine one and intuitive missions mission one, like uh, intuitive missions, did I, <laughs> the intuitive machines mission one, they share a lot of instruments as well. So it sounds like we have a pretty large suite, I think it's 24 instruments that they want to fly on various clips missions. And they're kind of just shoving them in all over the place mm-hmm. and getting the same instruments to different locations on different vehicles. Like that's, that's a science bonanza, you know, like it was really right. cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. These, these landers. And I, I think we mentioned this when we talked about Mastin uh, specifically, but like, these landers just, you know, they're just amazing how many, like, payloads you can just strap on to the sides, and, you know, they've got, you know, some of them can be exposed, some of them can be, you know, indoors, you know, just all the variation that's uh, available from them it's, you know they're really well designed
2: I love living in the future
0: <laughs> yeah cool all right so let's um, translate right on over to another topic so I'll just talk a little bit more about SpaceX uh, just very briefly um, I guess just uh, this is more like an update on what's going on with the crew dragon endeavor spacecraft so it's been exactly three weeks on orbit and apparently all things are going well one thing that the astronauts have been doing is that they've been putting the dragon into sleep mode for a week then they wake it up they perform you know some systems checks and then they put it back into sleep mode. And there's no information on exactly what that means, but it is an interesting thing to consider that the Dragon spacecraft has a sleep mode. It is like solar powered, so it can, you know, keep its systems up and running. And I guess it like docks into the station's power supply as well, I think, right? It shares I don't, power. I
2: don't remember if. If Ida can do power transfer,
1: oh, here we go. Ida converts yada yada and allows the transfer of crew, cargo, power, and data. Okay, yeah, but not fuel, which sucks. But no, you know,
2: we don't. We don't have any commercial, uh, any commercial vehicles that are transferring fuel to ISS anyway. So no, and you know, actually, it wouldn't be able to anyway because there aren't any engines on the front of station. Uh, <laughs> The USOS doesn't have any engines, so it really would not be a great place to donate fuel.
0: So do you have any idea, like, do you think, just um, in your opinion, what it means to go into sleep mode? (laughs) Like, what does it mean when a dragon sleeps? A
2: dragon sleeps. Yeah. (laughs) So there there are a lot of moving parts um, on crew spacecraft, um, and those often are the things that have the shortest lifespans on orbit. And so my guess, and again, this is a guess, my guess is that they're mostly just shutting down all the fans, all the life support systems. And then on top of that, they can probably shut down the computers as well to reduce the, the power draw. It, it's probably not shut all the way down. Like it's mm-hmm. probably not cold. Yeah. What is it called? Uh, cold and dark or dark and cold when you like totally shut down mm-hmm. an aircraft. Um, so they're probably not going down to cold and dark. And you wouldn't want to if this is, a you know, potentially a lifeboat. Right. But yeah, it's, it's probably mostly mechanical systems. And then on top of it, they can probably drop some of their computer systems as well.
0: And you had mentioned using it as a lifeboat. And that's something else that they're probably going to look into rehearsing in uh, the coming weeks, which that's an interesting scenario. I wonder how they're going to play that out. Uh, you know, just uh, I assume that they have a... I guess like a protocol developed that they have had written up for some time now. And they're just going to, you know, go through that checklist and see if they can perform all the necessary steps within a very short period of time. Because the idea is to get in that thing and take off within, I guess, just a matter of minutes, which like when you look at a standard departure, it takes forever. So doing it in just, you know, a couple of minutes in an emergency, that seems crazy to me. But, um, I assume it's actually not that hard. It's just that you have to forego all the safety checks and you know, you just undock and go.
2: Oh, they (laughs) SpaceX actually. Actually calls it quiescent mode. So quiescent, you know, refers to death, which makes it an odd word choice. Um, Not which makes me. I think. I think that quiescent is a reference to the Culture series. Because oh, okay. there was, um, what's it called? There, there's a division called, oh, the, there was a ship called Quintetutinal Service, I think. And then I think there was a, a whole division called like Quiescence or something.
1: I mean, my, my take without knowing any better is just that this is kind of just powering down systems. But like SpaceX is very sleek and very cool and kind of fun with their branding and what they call things and how they do like talking about the, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Quindar tones, right? Like Mm -hmm. things like, you know, just there's a lot that they do. That's really just neat and cool. And I think, uh, I I actually would have thought that they, they would have been the ones to brand it as uh, sleep mode just to kind of make it a little more down to earth and something that, you know, doesn't sound technical and kind of just a random person watching, you know, a live stream or reading about it in a news article could be like, Oh yeah, I, you know, wrap my brain around that that makes space you know seem a little less remote and kind of technical you know what i mean but uh quiescent mode also i think you know that actually makes it sound even more peaceful (laughs) to me (laughs) now now so i mean there are procedures for like going and climbing into a soyuz to potentially use that as a lifeboat right but that's usually like people like are, are like that's not like everyone's just moving around the station Business as usual, doing their work, and then suddenly, you know, all right, we got to make it to the Soyuz and get off station in three yeah, minutes I, or something like that. Or is it? Uh, do they have yeah. these kind of contingencies? Yep. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yep. And we we've actually done that. You remember the. It wasn't the most recent leak.
1: One of these drill holes.
2: Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the drill holes emergency. I don't think there was. There was one where they all hopped in Soyuzes and waited for an hour within the last like two years.
1: Right, and th- and that was the distinction. Sorry, I was trying to make was that was it a matter of like. That one, they're already in the Soyuz, you know. The way this was, uh, David, you were describing this, this sounds to me like this could be like the kind of thing in the movies, you know, where, (laughs) again, literally it's just business as usual and then suddenly, like, people have to scramble across station... Right. Well, in, it,
0: I mean, yeah, it can be. Yeah. Yep.
1: It, it's it. Yeah, it's
2: it's a thing.
0: I think yeah. that that just hasn't happened yet. I mean, they've actually, you know, taken precaution, and then you know, they've gotten in the Soyuz just to wait and see. But mm-hmm. I mean, if something happened, like you know, that was catastrophic, then yeah, they would have to get in there as quickly as possible and you know, leave. Um, but I think that the event you're talking about, Ben, was probably when they were at risk of having a collision with some kind of debris. Remember? I think oh, that's when.
2: Oh, that might be what I'm thinking of. You're right. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it was like a one in a thousand. I can't remember what mm-hmm. the chance was. But, yeah, they all had to get in and wait for the object to pass, and then they got back it out of the Soyuz. It came
1: within, like, I want to say, like, it was still something like, you know, a one-and-a-half-kilometer radius or something like that, which was yeah. close enough to be, like, yeah.
2: And also, I need to I need to renege on my statement that quiescent is a funny word here, because it's not even—actually, ISS has a quiescent mode um, that they use during— huh. um, during dockings uh and things like that the quiescent mode is when they shut down the thrusters for dockings and uh, eva and robotics and that kind of thing
0: let's do three short and sweets
2: yeah first up another trickle of starline contract information so, so constantly evolving story. Uh, The Washington Post reports that sources have indicated to them that Boeing had attempted to amend its proposal after the deadline. So this apparently happened before Levero's departure, um, but both the specifics and date of the requested changes uh, raised red flags inside NASA that something funny was happening. It sounds like this request helped uncover some of the improprieties we're all now wondering about. Additionally, a congressional aide told the Washington Post that Boeing also faces scrutiny, not just NASA, because acting on any information from Levero might have violated the integrity in
1: Procurement Act.
0: Next up, a small launch company, Astra, to make new orbital attempt. So after failing to win DARPA's launch challenge earlier this year, which involved launching two payloads from different launch pads with a relatively quick turnaround, Astra will make their second attempt this year to reach orbit by launching from the Pacific Spaceport Complex on Kodiak Island, Alaska. Their previous attempt with their Rocket 3.0 launch vehicle was scrubbed with less than a minute on the countdown due to off-nominal data from the GNC system, possibly from a malfunctioning valve. The Resilient Startup has announced a launch window starting July 20th that is expected to remain open for at least five days.
1: Finally, uh, NRO awards Rocket Lab with back-to-back launches. small Sat launch provider recently signed an agreement with the U.S.'s National Reconnaissance Office for two consecutive launches aboard their Electron rocket. Set for late spring 2021, the missions will launch from two separate pads— LC-1A and LC-1B at Rocket Lab New Zealand Complex, eliminating the need for pad recycling time between the launches. Earlier this year, the company was responsible for the first dedicated launch for the NRO from a spaceport outside the United States.
2: I wonder if they're going to get to see data on their payload very far in advance because that just sounds like the DARPA Launch challenge. Hmm. Totally different organization, but it sounds like it might be following the same requirements.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have two winners, the Greek and Ben Hallert, and I've read the tweet referring to exactly what this is about and it makes sense now and I don't know how I missed it. Um, I guess because I didn't know the quote, but yeah, the clue was full of menace like a shark and there's a really good reason why that's the clue. Yeah. Uh, And I guess you'll explain that. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, and I want to talk about Ben Hallert's tweet, but I, I guess I need to announce the event first. So this was, uh, this week in spaceflight history, June 25th, 1997, Progress M34 collides with Mir. And the quote refers to the progress. And, uh, Ben Hallert's guess included a Photoshop of a shark spaced, a shark shaped spacecraft. <laughs> uh with progress m34 stenciled on the side <laughs> and it absolutely cracked me up because my well especially because my bot didn't include the photo and so his guest just had a had a date and i was like uh what i mean come on that's not a guess like you got to tell me what the event is and i click through and there's this wonderful photo so thank you ben <laughs> I, I really appreciate that all right so in august so this is june of 1997 back in august of 94 uh progress m24 had actually collided with mir the kurs uh, automatic docking system failed and the phrase i would use is it bonked the station didn't Cause any damage as far as I know. Um, and the, so the curs failed, bonked the station, and then they successfully performed the docking manually using the Toru remote control system. It's very important. <laughs> it's kind of foreshadowing here. So, uh, last week we talked about, uh, how hard it is for me to actually write down the correct date and then to actually read the date, even if I've written it down correctly. And so we were totally confused. Um, I had seen progress M24's date as being in July of 1993, which was incorrect. It was August of 94, but I initially had written down uh, next week in 1993, and then you folks corrected it to 1994. And then I was like, man, something's wrong here. And so we all kind of scrambled around and realized that we were looking at M24 and not M34, Mm -hmm. which was 1997, and in June. So... -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's way more information that anybody actually cares about, but it was kind of a funny... Uh, three stooges routine of us running around, <laughs> changing the document, finding something else, changing the document back and forth. All right. So back to M34. Uh, it had docked previously at Mir, uh, in April of that year. And so what they were doing, they weren't sending it home. They were just going to undock, back away from the station, and then redock. So normally progresses, progress I, uh, dock using curs. Um, which by the way, we still use, well, Russia still use KURS. I'm going to say we, we're, we're all humans. We still yeah. use Kurs today um, to dock both Progresses and Soyuzes. But what had happened was after the end of the USSR, after the breakup of the USSR, um, the Kurs technology reverted to what Became again the country of Ukraine. And so Ukraine now owns this unique technology. They and the ability to manufacture it. So they raised the price. Um, and so Russia, uh, well, Roscosmos decided to, um, try to stop purchasing it if they could. So they, um, wanted to test the Toru system. Now, granted, they had already used Toru to dock m24 but i guess they wanted more data on how this worked in a nominal situation um unfortunately they did not get a nominal situation so uh toru is well before we talk about toru let's talk about mir so we don't talk about mir that much on this show even though so many interesting things happened on it it just kind of doesn't quite hit my this week in space flight radar um although uh it's hard to go you know a couple of shows without uh david bringing up the fire on mir <laughs> mm-hmm. which i believe <laughs> happened during this expedition it might have been this one might have been the one before with before they swapped out the american astronaut in any case um because we don't talk about mir that much i want to go over uh mir anatomy uh so that we can all get on the same module so the core module Uh, has a front end and a back end. We're going to talk about the front end as the end that points prograde on the retrograde side. It has a five port node. Um, So in the orientation that I'm going to put it, because I I don't, I think they allowed mirror to point in a, in a number of different attitudes, but the attitude that I'm pretty sure it was in uh, during this event was the engines and a single docking port pointing ProGrade and a five-port node pointing RetroGrade. So on the ProGrade side is QVANT1, which is, I believe, basically a power module. It's, it's pretty short, and it has a docking port on the front and the back or the top and the bottom. So that's ProGrade. RetroGrade, you've got the this five-port node, kind of a ball with four around this, four around the edges, kind of like in a skirt shape and then one pointing uh, retrograde or, or up when, however you want to put it. So um, in the, the ring, the, the four docking nodes that are in a ring were Kvant 2, Crystal, Spectre, and Preroda are the, are the nodes that go around there. Then the core retrograde port uh, is where Soyuz docks. And then there's a progress uh, that docks on Kvant-1 on the front, uh, the the prograde uh, docking port. Okay, if I haven't totally confused you, um, just one more little thing here. We're going to be talking about the Spectre module, and if you're at all familiar with with MIR, I think Spectre is the the module that is most recognizable to me anyway, it's the one with a pointy end. And so it's got four solar arrays. Two of them are closer to the docking port and they stick out uh, straight, I guess they stick out laterally. Um, And then there are two more that are a bit farther down and they're on the pointy end. So they kind of that conical end cap and they're, they're canted away from the station. So one looks like you standing with your arms out and then the, the other two, one one pair looks like you standing with your arms out. The other pair looks like you standing with your arms up, or you know, pointed up. And we we could talk about why specters shape that way, but I don't think this is the the right time to do it. So, uh, back to Toru. Um, as far as I understand. Toru doesn't include radar sensing the way KERS does, so there's there's no distance measurement built into it. It's just a camera that sends telemetry back to the station and joysticks on the station that send command, navigation commands back, or thruster firing commands back to the Soyuz. And uh, it's the camera footage is not super high resolution, and the display that they have it on is not a very large display. So that all leads to the problem of it's very hard to dock a spacecraft visually through a window. It's even harder to do it through a camera. And it's even harder to do it when you've got low resolution on a small display. And and the, the big issue here is that the farther away from the station you are, the smaller it is, and the smaller its size changes as your speed changes, right? The the rate of it uh getting smaller and bigger on the screen is very fast when you're close to it and very 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 slow when you're far away from it. So as they're bringing the progress back into dock, it was coming in too fast. Um they issued too many thruster firings towards the station because they, you know, weren't sure which direction they were traveling in. And the whole time, uh well, <laughs> during the initial approach, astronaut Mike Foul was standing in a window uh with a laser rangefinder pinging the the approaching progress to basically get uh, an approach rate kind of in this very manual way where he can shout rates through the station. But as the progress got closer and closer, it it moved out of the range that he could see out of the window. Um, and so they basically started scrambling trying to spot it out the window. Even though they have a camera feed from it, they really want to have eyes on it. And we really only have stories of, about the events. There, there are likely official reports somewhere, but they're likely just as nebulous as a story told by an astronaut, because that's what they are. So the the stories that I've read, and I've read a couple of different versions, there'll be links to a couple of different versions, but the stories make it sound like Vasily Siblev, who uh, was working the Toru system, realized how fast the vehicle was going about the same time that they spotted it out the window and credit i guess goes to Alexander Lazukin who saw it first and about the time that Lazukin saw it out the window Sibolev realizes how fast it's going and they're both they you know they both kind of panic uh as much as an astronaut can panic or a cosmonaut can panic and Letzukin eventually describe or later described the progress as looking full of menace like a shark. Uh, and he said, quote, I watched this black body covered in spots sliding past below me. I looked closer, and at that point there was a great thump and the whole station shook. So why would the progress Uh, be sliding below him when it was approaching the station. Well, what had happened was Sibolev realizes how fast the thing is moving, and he starts firing the the braking thrusters, if you can call them that, to to slow the vehicle. But he understands he's not going to be able to slow it fast enough. And so what he does is he um, pushes the progress laterally to try and just avoid the station. Can't stop in time, so let's go zipping past it. And there is actually a fantastic Video, Uh, it's a CG rendering. I don't know if it is based on uh, telemetry because we don't have that good telemetry. I think it's a reconstruction, uh, looking at the damage and the descriptions from the astronauts. Uh, So, if you want to see this video, go click on the history.nasa.gov link associated with this week in spaceflight history, and it's down at the bottom. But it's it's uh, not a render. It's it's a CG animation uh of this collision happening. So I'm going I'm going to try to describe it because it's actually uh sort of an interesting s- sequence of events. If you're told, "Hey, a progress collided with Mir during docking," you might think, "Oh, well, we slammed into the docking ring." But that's not what happened. So like I said, uh it had been pushed off center. And um as Sibolev pushes it laterally, he sees mirror disappear off of the screen right it, it mirror goes out of the camera range and so at that point he has no idea where this thing is but he keeps pushing sideways um, or, or laterally in reality it was probably it, it probably moved nadir so in this animation uh specter is pointed zenith but as far as i can tell it normally points nadir Um, so I'm going to go ahead and go with the animations orientation, uh, for my description. So he starts pulling the spacecraft or he starts pulling progress towards Zenith and a little bit, a little bit off to the side. I don't know if it'd be starboard or port because I don't know if I'm supposed to reference the progress's orientation or so for, for progress, it would be up and right. So zenith and starboard in any event Mir drops off of his display um and then suddenly shows up again as the one of the the lower um solar arrays on specter come in front of this the the progress or progress gets to the point where that this thing is suddenly just looming in front so what happens is the nose of progress impacts the base of of this solar array and it puts a pretty good dent in the solar array which forms the solar array almost into a a pocket into which the round orbital module of the progress can rotate almost like a ball and socket joint so it impacts, and that starts both mirror rotating, uh, pitch up from mirror's point of view, and it starts the progress rotating, also pitch up from its point of view. Um, but because the the head of the progress is rotating in this joint, it's basically like the, the tail end of the progress drops downward. Um, it impacts uh, first a a radiator that is flush with the surface of Spectre and then slides off of that and then impacts the, the hull. And I would describe this sort of as a side slap motion. And so the initial impact with the solar array and then the side slap add a lot of rotation to mirror and then progress goes tumbling off. Luckily it didn't um, have a second contact with the station because it it was kind of tumbling away but not very quickly um and one of the other solar rays, or even another module could easily have uh rotated and and recontacted the progress
1: yeah that really sticks so, out at you sorry but just watching the animation i was like yeah. oh my god how did it not hit anything else after <laughs> isn't yeah <isn't> a <laughs> side crazy? slap as you described it yeah they were lucky this was bad
2: could have been worse so after this after this contact happened, Mira experienced a power loss. I don't believe it was a total power loss. Um I, actually I can confidently say it wasn't a total power loss because they still had communication with the ground. But I'm I'm unsure of how much of the station uh experienced a power loss, and I'm also unsure why it experienced a power loss. Uh it might have been damaged power lines running through Spectre. So, you know, Spectre either loses some power because of the damaged solar array, or loses all power because they hit um, some sort of power distribution or something like that. And so the power from specter, Cut off. And so some parts of the rest of the station were relying on Spectre's power supply. It could have been the fact that the solar arrays were no longer pointed at the sun and the, and the batteries weren't able to support certain computer systems. I'm not exactly sure what happened here, but basically they didn't have enough power to run some of the computers and either the computers were in charge of the gyrodynes or the gyrodynes themselves lost power. Um, so the gyros weren't able to slow the spin of the spacecraft, so they had to use the engines. And I believe it's because the computers that were human interface computers died, or or maybe they weren't configured like this in the first place. I'm I'm not uh, very familiar with MIR systems, but the astronauts and cosmonaut the astronauts and cosmonauts on board weren't able to fire the engines to slow down um not only that but they didn't have rate displays um they couldn't tell how fast they were spinning so while they could call down to the ground they couldn't tell them how to slow the the space or how to slow the the tumble of of mir And so they actually had to estimate their spin rate by watching stars and seeing how fast they were rotating. And apparently uh, techniques learned in the Russian Navy came in really handy, um, star navigation techniques. I I mean, maybe that's just recognizing which stars are which, but I I have a feeling that there was actually calculating that rate came down to some stellar navigation techniques, um, estimating um, angles, basically. So anyway, um, they were able to call down to the ground and they successfully slowed Mir's rotation. Unfortunately, uh, Spectre had a puncture in its hull that the hull contact actually breached the the pressure vessel. Um, So air is rushing out of Spectre, which means that uh, air from the rest of the station is rushing into Spectre. The problem here is, um, the core module, the functional cargo block, uh, the, um, the docking ports on it are the, they're, they're the, the drogue end of the docking port, um, which means that they open outward, right? If you, if you think about what it looks like when you, uh, see astronauts ingressing from Soyuz, they have to pull the probe back into the station or back into the Soyuz, but then actually the station's drogue end actually folds inward. So maybe I don't understand exactly what's wrong here. But the um the pressure sealed they wanted to close opened inward into specter, or I guess outwards from the core module into Spectre. And so to close it, you have to be able to hold it against the air that's rushing into Spectre uh, and then out through the hole. And so they weren't actually able to close the hatch and so they used an object which i've seen described as a plaque and i have no idea what what object this is but they basically set the plaque up against the opening and it um suctioned into place um the air pressure held it in place and formed a nice seal
1: oh my goodness (laughs) yeah
0: that's something you see in movies didn't know they ever did it in real life
2: And, and so i'm not sure what The plaque is, I doubt that it's, you know, like a commemorative plaque. I think it's, I think it might just be the way that the, the descriptor attached to the, uh, the inside door. I'm not sure. I, I shouldn't speculate if I don't know. But anyway, um, later they brought up a quote unquote proper hatch. Basically, they had to build a hatch that could, or a, a door that could seal this hatch, a plug that could seal this hatch, um, but be brought in from a, uh, from a progress. So I, I'm guessing it had to fold to be able to get through a similarly sized docking port, right? um but they were they were able to seal the module off sort of in a not impromptu way later um but after this event specter uh was unusable it ended up you know bleeding down to vacuum and I, I don't believe that it ever got power again i i think i don't know if that's because they couldn't repair it or because they you know actually shut it down and and said go to sleep but yeah, there you go. I mean, Mir is uh, an amazing accomplishment. It's the first thing that we would think of as a space station. And uh and, and we learned a lot of things from it. And you know, it has heritage on ISS today. Uh the functional cargo block uh, on ISS is directly related to the functional cargo block on Mir. Um, so, you know, we have to praise it for for its accomplishments, even as we, you know, kind of cringe at some of the near disasters that happen. We just got to remember that these near disasters uh, taught us a lot of things about living in space.
0: Yeah. Just one of several emergencies that occurred on Mir. It's always uh, interesting to hear those stories. What's, the, what's interesting is that they restored power to the module, but they just left it depressurized. I wonder why they would restore power.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't. No, no, I don't think that they did restore power to it.
0: They didn't restore full power, but they got it back up to 70% of its uh, pre-collision generation capability, it says, but that it was left depressurized okay. and isolated. So
1: There you go. So they so yeah, so they could draw power from it, I guess. I just I I think I found, at least according to this, it was an external hatch cover that was just lying around. There you go. Good. Hmm. Good. a, I back a, patch. a
2: Yes, <laughs> I I did some googling but I never I could never find another source that called it a plaque. I should have thought to go the other way around and look for more sources about the about the depressurization. Mm. All
0: right. Well, that was a really cool uh, tale from Mir. <laughs> I guess we should call them that. Uh, so what is our clue for next week?
2: All right. Next week in 2005, the clue is smarter than a deformed copper disc.
0: Okay. Smarter than a deformed copper disc in 2005. I feel like this has something to do with like com- uh, computers or something like that. I don't know. Probably not. Okay. So next week in 2005, smarter than a deformed copper disc. If you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck.
1: Good luck, everybody.
0: So moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got a couple of launches and and we have an EVA. The first launch is on June twenty third. That's a Falcon nine with Starlink nine, and that's also launching uh, Black Sky Global five and six. So Black Sky Global, that's a Seattle based company, and they're launching. Couple of rideshare satellites, and I believe it's just um, these are just Earth observation microsatellites. So that's launching at 21:58 UTC or 5:58 on the East Coast, and that's launching from Launch Complex 39A at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, so that's definitely one you could watch. Very convenient time of day. So yeah, I'll probably definitely check that one out.
2: Yeah, and uh, so Sam in the chat points out that um, Black Sky is owned by Spaceflight, the rideshare company. So interesting. Yeah. Pretty cool. So after that, we have a spacewalk. Yay. So June 24th, uh, Wednesday, June 24th at 2 p.m. Eastern will be the preview briefing. And then the actual spacewalk um, will take place on Friday, the 26th. Coverage begins at 6 a.m. The spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 730, 7, 7.35 a.m. Eastern time, of course, uh, and is expected to last about seven hours. Um so that's uh well worth putting on and just running in the background.
1: And then finally, on June 30th, we've got another Falcon 9 that'll be taking up uh, GPS-3 SV-03. And so this is the third 3rd gen uh, GPS uh, satellite that be launched. Uh, it's suffered a number of delays going back to October of last year, but um, hopefully it will finally uh, launch uh, with a window between 1955 and 2010 UTC or uh, 3.55 to 4.10 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, uh, and it'll be uh, launching out of Slick 14th Cape. Alright, great. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: Time to do over the show then, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern thank you so much to our $5 and a Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
2: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links and other resources. A big welcome and thank you to our new ad co level supporter, Chris
1: Pings. Thanks, Chris.
0: And for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts and hoodies.
1: You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links or Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on orbit. Until then, later.
2: Goodbye, everybody. See you.